I'm James Gould, and this is The Recess Course. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about what is the black box of the ventilator and how to manage patients on a ventilator and some of the emergencies that can happen while patients are on the vent. And we're really lucky today to have with us Dr. Laurel Murphy. Laurel is an assistant professor in the Department of both Critical Care and Emergency Medicine. She's neurocritically care trained at Cambridge University and is currently the program director in the Department of Emergency Medicine, the educational lead for critical care. She's a critical care transport physician and medical consultant for the Toxicology Poison Center. Thanks for being here, Laurel. Thanks for having me, James. So we're pretty lucky here in Halifax that we work pretty closely with our RTs, respiratory therapy, and they manage most of the ventilator settings and most of quite frankly, the ventilator management in the eMERGE. But that's not always the case, and there's certainly going to be situations where we need to know how to do this ourselves. And so what would be your standard response to this question when someone asks you, what do you want to start with? Sure. So I think there are basically four parameters that you need to know how to set on the ventilator. The first one is that you need to pick a mode. So Basically, what variable do you want to control for the patient? And your options are really two. You can control the volume that the patient's getting, or you can control the pressure that the patient's lungs are receiving. You have to pick a rate. You have to pick a PEEP level. And then you need to choose an FiO2. So most of the people that I'm intubating, I'm doing an RSI on. So I need to choose a controlled mode for that. And most often I choose volume control because I know the volume that the patient is going to see and therefore can predict to some extent that they're going to get reasonable gas exchange. So my go-to mode is volume control. A typical respiratory rate would probably be 16, and I'd modify that based on, you know, if I think they need a really high tidal volume for some other reason. Starting PEEP for me would be the 5 to 8, 5 for normal-ish body habitus, eight if the patient's obese, and then always start the FiO2 at 100% and you can titrate down. I just want to slide in here for a minute and expand on something that we're talking about. Depending on where you work, the names of all of these modes may be slightly different. And that particular complexity may lead to some confusion when you're trying to set the ventilator. In general, breaths can be delivered via pressure or by volume. You can either set and give a certain pressure and get a volume back, or you can set and give a certain volume and get a pressure back, which is all going to depend on the compliance of the lungs and the system that you're delivering the breath to. When it comes to the mode, you're going to see a whole bunch of different things. There's controlled mechanical ventilation, assist control, IMV, SIMV. Each of these modes can be delivered with volume or pressure but differ in terms of the trigger and the type of breath being delivered, that being either mandatory, assisted, or spontaneous. When it comes to the triggering, the ventilator or the patient can trigger breath. That differs depending on the mode that you're in. CMV, for example, is completely ventilator-triggered, where all other modes can be triggered by the machine or by the patient. When we talk about types of breaths, mandatory and assisted are both full mechanical breaths. It's just that mandatory is done completely by the ventilator, triggered by it, and assisted is triggered by the patient and the ventilator takes over with a full mechanical breath. These two types of breaths are what we see in modes like assist control, 
in volume or pressure, essentially you can set a rate on the ventilator for all the mandatory breaths, and the patient can also trigger with extra breaths that will be assisted with a full mechanical breath. So take, for example, a patient that you've intubated who is paralyzed. They might be on assist control volume control with a set rate of mandatory breaths. And then when their paralysis wears off and they start triggering the ventilator, they will get assisted breaths above and beyond what that set rate is. Spontaneous breaths or supported breaths are something different. They're triggered by the patient like assisted breaths. But once triggered, the ventilator just gives some support. It's not a full mechanical breath like an assisted breath. The typical example of this would be in a mode like pressure support ventilation, where there's an inspired pressure support and a PEEP set, but it's entirely triggered by the patient and supported by the ventilator. There are modes that use all of the above, like SIMV, which is synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation, where the patient can trigger their mandatory breaths if they occur close in time from when they were supposed to get the mandatory breath. And then any additional breaths that they take will be supported via pressure support, SIMV pressure support. Finally, there's a whole bunch of mixed modes on the ventilator that are complex that involve pressure and volume, and we're just not going to get into that. What are you doing these days in terms of sort of lung protective volume settings? Like is... Are you going with six mils per kilo, eight mils per kilo, something different? What's the newest evidence and your approach to that? Yeah, so I'm doing six mils per kilo. And how closely I follow that depends on the patient's physiology, which really comes down to how terrible is their lung compliance. So we talk about that mostly for ARDS. But this, the surprising thing is how small six mils per kilo is for people because it's based on their ideal body weight. So it's not the weight that's in front of you, it's based on their ideal body weight, which is a height-based table. So I'm 5'4". If you look up what six mils per kilo is for me, it's somewhere around 350 mils. It's really small. And we almost always overestimate it if we ballpark it. So you need to look it up if you are Mm. really concerned about doing lung protective ventilation. At this point in the podcast, Laurel and I kind of diverged into a talk on the benefits or lack thereof for spontaneous ventilation in the ED or pressure support ventilation. Now, for the most part, it's a bit irrelevant as the majority of patients intubated in the emergency department are going to be done via RSI and will be paralyzed. And therefore, after intubation, you're simply just going to be on a controlled mode. There is a subset of patients who get intubated either awake or with a ketamine-only approach who will have their own drive to breathe. You could make some argument that perhaps spontaneous breathing is more physiologic, resulting in less hemodynamic effect in an unstable patient, and that perhaps their awareness and drive to breathe may enhance their sympathetics. There's not a great deal of literature that really answers this question but it certainly does make some practical sense in that subset of patients. Once you're on the ventilator, obviously there's things that you're checking to make sure that everything's going smoothly. What are those, what are those numbers? So are you checking an ABG or VBG and how often are you doing that? And then what numbers are you taking from that? Or if it's not from that, what numbers are you taking from the ventilator or from the, from the patient's monitor to try to say like, yeah, I'm doing a good job. 
Yeah, good question. So the frequency with which I'm checking those variables, again, depends on the underlying pathology. So basically, if it's a lung reason or a non-lung reason, and then how deranged their acid-base status is going into this. So if it's sepsis or DKA, then those patients probably have a significant metabolic acidosis coming into this. Their lungs may be fine, but I'm going to want to check those gases pretty frequently to see the acid-base derangement interface of their underlying metabolic acidosis with now my control of their ventilation from a respiratory point of view. The patients I really care about and monitor quite closely is those with severe ARDS. Those are the ones that I'm really going to check frequently so I can see what the trajectory is of their lungs and decide about some of the big therapeutic interventions like neuromuscular blockade or proning or ECMO. I would like a gas ideally half an hour after that patient is kind of intubated and settled to see where I am. And the things that I really care about on the gas are the pH and the PCO2. Those are the most important things. PAO2, also important, although some literature saying that we should probably rely a bit more on SATs than PAO2 for titration of our FiO2 in these patients. What are the actual numbers that you're trying to target? I imagine it's different what you will uh, not necessarily target, but what you'll tolerate in some groups of patients. But if you were to take the ideal scenario in, say, a standard patient that we're intubating for respiratory failure of the lung, like hypoxic respiratory failure, what would you target for those numbers, CO2, PaO2, or if it's SATs, like, what numbers are you okay with? So I guess in the ideal world, everything would be normal, right? So we'd have a pH of 7.4, PCO2 between 35 and 45, and PaO2 of at least 60. Now, when we talk about people who have primary respiratory pathology, particularly COPD, as you know, those people tend to live at a higher PCO2. And over time, they've compensated for that respiratory acidosis by increasing the bicarb in their blood. So, so they kind of come to live at a, a different homeostasis. So for COPD patients, or for severe ARDS patients, we often talk about this concept of permissive hypercapnia, where we tolerate their PCO2 being a bit higher than the absolute normal level, and therefore their pH being a bit lower than the absolute normal level, to allow ourselves to not have to ventilate them quite so much, because we know it's the process of ventilating them that can damage their lungs. So if I can use a slightly lower driving pressure on my ventilator to maintain a fine oxygenation and an okay ventilation, let them be a little bit acidotic, but not too acidotic, then I'm happy with that. If you were going to follow the SATs, what number is sort of in vogue? Like, I, I imagine you don't want 100%. I, you know, I know that hyperoxia is, is a bad thing, or you don't mm -hmm. need 100%, I guess. What number are you tolerating if you were going to follow the SATs? Yeah, so similar to kind of traditional teaching for obstructive processes, 88 to 92. For other processes, 95 plus is what most people will say. Um, yeah. And then if you're hitting 100%, you can't really tell actually how much, what their PaO2 is, right? So you really do need to draw a gas to, to make sure it's not 500, for example. Young healthy lungs can generate really high PaO2s on a high FiO2, and that's going to cause damage from hyperoxygenation, as you say. It, not to simplify things into, 
you know, this is the knob for oxygen and this is the knob for CO2. I imagine it's a little bit more complex than that. But it, like, if you needed to go up on your on your oxygenation, that's a PEEP FiO2 sort of combination. And if you need to alter your CO2, you know, that's some kind of alteration in your respiratory rate or tidal volumes, depending on the, the lung pathology. Is that fair to say? That's essentially it. Mm, nice. So then how do you, like, what's your approach then? I imagine it's nuanced, but in general, what's your approach to say, like, they need more oxygenation, so I'm going to go up on what? What is the response? Yeah, so as you say, it depends a bit. If their PEEP is low, and the lowest PEEP most people, I think, in ICU use is a PEEP of 5. So if their PEEP is 5, then it would be very reasonable to uptitrate the PEEP. Also very reasonable and probably the easiest thing that gets done is to increase the FiO2. And that depends on where both of those are at, right? Like if they're on an FiO2 of 30%, going to 30, 40, from 30 to 40 is of no consequence. If they're already on a PEEP of 12, then I'd probably rather increase the FiO2 than increase the PEEP higher than that. But it really depends on the patient and their body habitus and what's been going on with them. Right. Right. I imagine if there's a lot of pulmonary shunt for whatever reason, there's a long list of reasons why someone might have pulmonary shunt that increasing the PEEP might get more bang for your buck. In terms of the CO2, like let's say you wanted to alter your CO2, what which are you going to rely on more? Are you going to just keep your tidal volumes as they are as lung protective and then just change your respiratory rate? Like if you needed to go you felt like you're too hypercapnic and you weren't going to tolerate that, you just go up on your respiratory rate? That would be my preference as long as I have time in my kind of over my respiratory minute to do that. And the time limiting factor is what the rate is already, but also how much obstruction are in these lungs and therefore how long does it take them to expire after each breath? Bad COPD may have an inspiratory to expiratory ratio of one to five. So that's going to limit how many respiratory cycles or how many breaths I can give them in a minute while still letting them exhale all the way because I don't want to keep increasing the volume of air in their lungs by not letting them exhale. That'll lead me to pneumothoraces and all kinds of trouble. So it, it really depends, but my preference would be to increase the respiratory rate. Mm. Along those lines with the obstructive lung disease, let can we talk about a few specific scenarios and how the initial ventilator settings might change versus what we've talked about already? Yeah. So imagine a severe asthmatic, let's say, who unfortunately has required intubation. And I, I think ideally, most of these scenarios I'll give you, obviously would be ideal not to intubate these people. But let's say we have intubated this severe asthmatic. Do you do anything different there? Like they still, let's say they still have ongoing significant bronchospasm and you're giving them the kitchen sink. You've done all the stuff you're supposed to do and it hasn't resolved. Uh, is there anything different you're doing with the ventilator there? So, A, severe asthmatics scare me. Mm -hmm. Their relation of patients, kind of like the DKAs or maybe the ASA toxicities, where I really don't want to intubate them. But I also don't want to leave them so long that when I do intubate them, they're going to crash. But a population that I have a lot of respect for from a ventilatory point of view, the only significant difference for them is that you're going to set the PEEP about two-thirds of the intrinsic PEEP if you're, so you need them kind of on a controlled mode to figure that out. And you need an RT who's familiar with how to do that on whatever particular event you're doing. If you don't have the personnel and the equipment to do that, 
the general rule is that they need PEEP. They probably need a little bit less PEEP than COPDers. So whatever your go-to COPD PEEP is, so, you know, mine would be generally 8, 10, 12. I'm going to drop that down a little bit and be very cognizant of unintentionally causing dynamic hyper dynamic hyperinflation in that population. So you're going to keep a really good eye on what their breath sounds are like. You're going to continue to be very aggressive with bronchodilators and steroids and magnesium and all of the other stuff. You know, IV Ventolin is like that kind of craziness when you're talking about intubating asthmatics. And then be really careful of how much PEEP you're giving them to ensure that they're having time to empty their lungs before you're adding new breaths. Yeah. Yeah. And the other part of that is respiratory rate. This is, like you said earlier, one of those patients that you're probably tolerating some hypercapnia in. Presumably, there's a rate by which if you go too high, they'll just breast stack. What are you starting at for your rate in these patients? So I would start at a rate. Uh, it depends a bit on how acidotic they were, to be honest. But I'd probably start around kind of my middle of the road rate, which would be 16. So my low rate is 12. My highest rate to start is 20 and then in the middle is 16. And and actually, I would wash the trace on, on the ventilator for these patients if I'm using a, a like an inpatient vent to see if it looks like the expiratory limb is coming back to baseline. If it doesn't, then I'm worried that I'm causing air trapping and I'll drop the rate. And you can drop that kind of as low as they'll tolerate and still maintain their oxygenation. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a, a, this seems like one of those scenarios where we always talk about like wanting a low respiratory rate, but the better way to think about it is we don't want a low respiratory rate. Sometimes we have to have a low respiratory rate. So it does make sense to me that you would just kind of do the low normal end of what you normally do and then see what you get. And if you, if you don't have breast stacking, then that's great. And you don't have to start at a super low respiratory rate, but you just kind of go down based on what you get back from your initial setting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of this, like anything in medicine, is a trade-off, right? You've got a variable that you can't control because they're sick. So you're you're kind of titrating all of the other bits that you can to get, get them as close to normal as you can, but you're, you're not going to be perfect. I know you already mentioned severe metabolic acidosis, ASA, DK. We never want to intubate those people. But if we do, they have a really high minute ventilation requirement. So what do you, what do, you do with the ventilator to actually meet that requirement? Yeah. So I, I ask, first of all, trying to remember in my head that I need to do something about that because otherwise, if I don't see anything, they're just going to get put on whatever standard protocol that, that my institution usually does. So for those people, I'm going to ask for a higher tidal volume than normal and a higher respiratory rate than normal. You know, I said earlier that my typical kind of Joe Blow on the vent whose lungs aren't terribly sick tidal volume is probably 400, 450. These people, if their lungs are fine, I would ask for more like five or 600 mils for every breath that they take. And I would start their respiratory rate at at least 20, sometimes 24, 26, and then get a gas fairly quickly to see what's happening and modify things. One quick pearl here on determining minute ventilation need for these patients with metabolic acidosis is if the patient is on BiPAP before the induction, you should be able to get a sense of what their minute ventilation is from that BiPAP machine. And then what you can do is try to match that once the patient is paralyzed and on the ventilator. You know, you need some time to pre-oxygenate these patients anyway if you're going to be intubating them 
and they have metabolic acidosis, then most of the time it's because of some CNS effect or because of the fact that they're failing to keep up with their ventilatory demands. And so the latter would actually benefit from being on BiPAP in the short term prior to intubation anyway. You've done specialty training in neurocritical care. Is there anything different that you do for a patient with, say, a head injury or a catastrophic intracranial event? Like, is there something different we should be doing on the ventilator for, for these TBIs? I think more important for those patients is what we do, you know, immediately prior to being on the ventilator, which is when we tube them and really making the biggest effort you possibly can to not let them become hypoxic or hypotensive. It's probably more important than anything we do on the vent. The key to most things about managing neurocritical care patients is to try and keep everything normal. Like the brain is like a cranky old person who doesn't tolerate change very well. It wants everything normal and it usually manages that with the blood-brain barrier. If that's been damaged, then the next best thing we can do is to try to maintain normalcy for it or on its behalf, if you will. So we used to talk about a lot of hyperventilation to drive down the PCO2. The current evidence with respect to PCO2 is to just try and keep it in the middle of your range. So our range is 35 to 45. I want the PCO2 at 40. The only time where I hyperventilate people uh, because the vasoconstriction will slightly de decrease the cerebral volume and therefore decrease ICP slightly. The only time I do that is if it's a bridge, a very short-term bridge to some sort of intervention because you only get, you know, the literature varies, but you only get, let's say, an hour of effect from that before you get some rebound vasodilation from hyperventilating a patient and blowing down their PCO2. So the only reason to do that, in my opinion, is if, you know, you're booking a level one OR to go decompress them. Really good pearl. So basically, you know, as you said, keep things normal, hyperventilation, essentially you're sacrificing cerebral oxygenation to try to stop them from herniating from a blood volume perspective. You're actually like decreasing the amount of volume that's going into the brain. Yeah, it's, and not, oxygenating a good, it's not a good way to treat the brain at all. You know, yeah. you're, you're, you're definitely robbing Peter to pay Paul. Let's say you have had the patient intubated for a little while. Everything seemed to be going well, but uh, about an hour later, all of a sudden an alarm starts going off in, in the recess room and the patient's sats begin to drop. This is you know, not a scenario we see that often, but I imagine this would be a, a sort of sphincter tightening experience for me. And I'm wondering what your approach is when you experience something like this. You walk into the room, what do you, what do, you do? Yeah, ideally I have someone else in the room with me so I don't have to do the stuff because as you say, it, it's you know certainly an eMERGE, not something that we have to deal with very often. And it's a very cognitively loading experience to try and troubleshoot it. So my absolute preference would be to have an RT or a you know highly trained eMERGE or critical care nurse to be doing this stuff so I can think about the stuff and not get mixed up with having to do things because then I, I know my brain won't work as well as I'd like it to. I think the first thing that's always beneficial to do is look at the vent and see what the alarm is. If it's an apnea alarm, then you can fix that pretty easily by tinkering with whatever your settings have been without getting all crazy and, and disconnecting the vent and that sort of thing. If it's an alarm where you're not oxygenating or ventilating the patient, then I think the first thing to do is to take them off the ventilator, connect them to a bag that's connected to wall oxygen, and squeeze the bag and see what happens. 
And you get a lot of information about what's going on based on that. And you also may inadvertently clear an obstruction by just kind of bagging them with higher pressure than the ventilator was giving them. So often that fixes a lot of things or it allows you to control the ventilation and get their saps up a little bit. The most common reason in my experience for alarms like this to happen would be if there's a mucus plug somewhere and often that's in the tube. So the next thing I want to do is get a small inline suction, like not a yonker, but one of those long skinny inline things made to go through the endotracheal tube and push it down the tube and see if I get anything up. Sometimes that in and of itself will clear things. So I would do that a couple of times and see if that makes any difference. And then after that, I always remind myself of the dope mnemonic, which is one of about three mnemonics in life that I actually are I actually am able to remember, you know, D-O-P-E, so displacement, obstruction, pneumothorax, and equipment failure. So we've, by putting them on a bag and suctioning them, obstruction or a lot of obstruction is dealt with. And then you've got to think about pneumothorax and displacement. So now I'm going to listen to their chest. And so I'm looking for unequal breath sounds, loss of breath sounds on one side or the other to try and give myself a clue about whether there's been a pneumothorax. Other things I would do would be to ultrasound their lungs to look for a pneumo that I can't hear because I can really only hear super obvious pneumos or if the endotracheal tube is migrated. And the other thing that will give you a good hint about a change in the position of the tube is just the sound of the vent. You know, even if you haven't been around a ton of vents, there's generally a normal sound to them and then they sound different if something's happened. So if the cuff has ruptured and you've got a leak in your circuit, there's generally a change in sound to that. Or if the balloons migrated above the cords, there's a change in sound to that. And so if something sounds different, it's often an issue with the ventilatory circuit and you might need some help to troubleshoot that. Or you're going to need to look down with a laryngoscope or video laryngoscope or what have you and make sure that your tube is still in the right place. So... I'm bagging them. I've suctioned them. I've listened to them. If I still can't figure out what's happening, then here's where I'm going to start checking my equipment. Is the oxygen still in line? Were they on a tank and that ran out? Some weirdness like that. So tracing everything back. And then I'm going to start thinking about, do I need to go down and recheck this tube placement? And do I need to bronch the patient? Not something we're going to do at eMERGE, but lots of times in the ICU population, they have a mucus plug you know, a little bit past the tip of the endotracheal tube. And sometimes they need to be instilled or just bronched to clear that out. Thanks. Yeah, I remember the dopes mnemonic along the way through residency. And the uh, the, the only other one that I had on my list was the S on the end of dopes, which is the stacked breast, which we kind of covered in the like a really asthmatic or, or COPD patient. And, and then I had this in the back of my mind, this dots mnemonic, which was like all of the things that you said and how you would manage the dopes, which is essentially disconnect the patient, give them oxygen, check the tube, tweak the vent and, and do sonography, which is looking for that pneumothorax. So dopes and dots. Yeah. One of the reasons to, you know, put them on a bag up front is that you, it requires you obviously to disconnect them. So if there is a dynamic hyperinflation or air trapping component, then Hopefully that's yeah. been somewhat mediated. Yeah, awesome. All right. That's all the questions that I had. Thank you so much for being on the show. And it's great to hear all those pearls and to, and to benefit from your expertise on this stuff. Okay, Thanks very care. much for having me, James. All right. 
For some, the ventilator is a box of mystery. We spend so much time focusing on the safe way to get a patient intubated. We stress the importance of a safe approach, like how to best pre-oxygenate patients, position them, what's the best intubating modality, how do you best alter our induction agent to optimize their physiologic response to that. And it's too often just high fives and handshakes after the tube goes in when really our job isn't done there. There are so many physiologic states that require attention to detail when it comes to management after the tube is in. In other words, how to manage the ventilator. We rely quite heavily on the expertise of our RT colleagues, and really this is truly an area we need to have knowledge and experience in. Next time you've intubated a patient and the high fives are done, turn around and pay attention to the ventilator. If you don't already know how to set the vent, what knobs to turn, which knobs to push, whoever usually does that for you, just ask them. I have no doubt that they'll be happy to help walk you through it. In general, most patients we are intubating in the ED receive an RSI, and for those patients, the immediate next step is a controlled mode of ventilation. Laurel prefers volume control ventilation. In our shop, that would be essentially assist control volume control. Because she can guarantee the minute ventilation she is going to deliver and can focus on that ideal body weight of 6 to 8 mils per kilo tidal volumes. Otherwise, for the general patient, including those with hypoxic respiratory failure, she's choosing a respiratory rate of roughly 16, a PEEP between 5 and 8, and an FiO2 of 100% with fairly quick titration down as able. What sort of things do we need to check in on? Laurel talked about trending the blood gas and saturations. You should check a blood gas about 30 minutes to an hour after the patient is on the ventilator to see how you're doing with the goal of normalizing the CO2 and having saturations of about 95% for those without obstructive lung disease. We talked about some specific situations where this general approach may differ, and that is in the patient with obstructive lung disease and the patient with severe metabolic acidosis. In general, the approach to these two types of patients is to just avoid intubating them altogether. They do a much better job at managing their physiology than we will do on a ventilator. But unfortunately, for a few reasons, they might just require us to take over. For the obstructive patient, COPD, asthma as an example, the goal is to give them enough time to exhale. If they aren't, you will see that flow time graph on the ventilator not coming back to baseline. In other words, they're breath stacking. This will lead to increased intrathoracic pressure, ultimately a pneumothorax, and badness. In terms of settings for these patients, you need to lower your respiratory rate to a point where they fully exhale, where they aren't breath stacking. This might be as low as 8 to 10 breaths a minute. This will increase their CO2 because their minute ventilation is going to be lower than what we want, but we're going to permit that to avoid breath stacking badness. If the pH gets too low on the basis of respiratory acidosis, you can always start a bicarbonate fusion, which would probably be around a pH less than 7.2. Remember though, we are tolerating a lower respiratory rate. We don't necessarily want one. Laurel had recommended starting somewhere around 16 breaths a minute. See whether or not you're breath stacking. And if you are, at that point, lower the respiratory rate. To get respiratory rates this low, you're going to have to be fighting the patient's drive to breathe as the paralysis wears off. So most of these patients will need either deep sedation or ongoing paralysis after the tube is in. 
peep in these patients is a bit more controversial. Laurel uses a peep of two-thirds, the intrinsic peep, a value that needs to be determined with some help from our RT colleagues. This augments vital airway emptying by splinting open airways. The old school of thought was that zero peep or zeep would be helpful to avoid exacerbating auto peep. Honestly, if you just start at five to eight of peep, that's probably going to be low enough that it's not going to make things worse and close enough to two-thirds intrinsic peep if you aren't able to sort that out from the ventilator. There's other things that we can try to change like the I to E time, increase flow rates if you're on a volume controlled mode, but the biggest bang for your buck in terms of allowing full expiration in obstructive lung disease is going to be lowering the respiratory rate. In the metabolic acidosis patient, we talked about increasing that minute ventilation to meet their demand once on the ventilator. There are lots of calculations you can use to predict what minute ventilation needs will be based on the goal CO2, but an easier way is just pre-oxygenate the patient with BiPAP, find out what the minute ventilation is, and start from there. The patient's respiratory rate can only be so high that they aren't breath stacking, which shouldn't really be a problem in most of these patients if they don't have significant obstructive lung disease. And lastly, something we didn't get into in this podcast is just be cautious about the physiologic impact of mechanical ventilation on cardiac physiology. PEEP may be helpful to augment LV function in some scenarios, but in general and in most pathologies that we see in the emergency department, mechanical ventilation serves to decrease preload, increase RV afterload, and ultimately have negative impact on the patient's cardiac and hemodynamic physiology. You just need to be prepared to manage that once the patient has been transitioned to positive pressure ventilation. Finally, Laurel talked about what the heck do you do when the alarm on the ventilator starts to sound? Well, the two things that you need to remember are dopes and dots, dots with two T's. Doped is going to be all of the reasons why the patient may be decompensating and why the alarm is going off and dots being what the heck are you going to do to try to fix this problem. Let's start with dopes. D-O-P-E-S. D, displaced tube. O, obstruction in the tube. P, pneumothorax. E, equipment failure. And S, stacking of breaths. And then what are you going to do? Dots, D-O-T-T-S. D, disconnect the patient from the ventilator. O, provide oxygen with a BVM and feel for resistance as you bag. T, tube position. Did the endotracheal tube migrate somewhere or is it kinked or is there a mucus plug that you need to suction out? T, tweak the ventilator. Are these the settings that are correct for this particular patient? And S, ultrasound. Do a sonogram and look for pneumothorax or a main stem intubation. That's all for ventilator management in the emergency department. I'm James Gould, and thanks for listening to the recess course.